From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. Writer and director Celine Song is on the exhausting awards circuit for the first time with her first movie, Past Lives. Now in the thick of it, Song says she didn't know what she didn't know, but that was a good thing. It is, of course, a source of uncertainty, but it's also a source of fearlessness for me because I can't be scared of what I don't know, right? And by the way, that helped me in production as well. In production, I feel like every day I was like, oh, I didn't know that I had to be scared of that, you know? Song and veteran indie producer Christine Vachon join us to talk about how Song came up with a script that mesmerized the producer and her partners. And Vachon explains why she feels optimistic about independent filmmaking, not in spite of the disruption and belt tightening in Hollywood, but because of it. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my partner in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So Netflix surprised everyone by dropping a huge amount of data a few days ago. This is in response to a clamor because, as you well know, for many years now, nobody has really gotten much in the way of transparency from Netflix. This was an issue in the recent strikes although this move doesn't appear to be in response to the strike situation. But Ted Sarandos, in announcing this, said that the lack of transparency was creating an atmosphere of mistrust with their creative partners, which is, I think, pretty safe to say. For me, a trove of data like this, which is a thrill for a lot of reporters, is not such a thrill because I'm incredibly bad at analyzing numbers. (laughs) But I think the takeaway maybe overall, and you can go into more detail because I'm sure understand it better than I do and are finding it more uh, fun to root around in there, is that a lot of originals do well on Netflix, but there's also literally thousands of things that nobody appears to be watching. And that's not so shocking when you consider the amount of spaghetti that Netflix throws against the wall. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a ton to look at. I mean, this is something that people like me have been asking for for years, literally since they started making original content back in 2013. And if you look at the high end, I mean, the number one show was The Night Agent which was a very kind of procedural, fast-paced drama. No stars in that, interestingly. Um, The number one movie was The Mother, starring Jennifer Lopez, which was released during this time period. That's an important caveat here. Yes, These are not the most-watched shows on Netflix. These are the most-watched during a six-month period. So it's January to June of this year, and it's heavily weighted towards things that were new on Netflix during that time, which tells you that people that subscribe to Netflix like to watch things that are new. It tells you also that originals are very popular on Netflix. It was about 45% originals on the list compared to 55% licensed content and movies and TV shows, which is more licensed stuff. But considering the volume of licensed content versus the relatively less number of originals, that's pretty good for their originals. Yeah, I mean, we should note that we haven't gotten this kind of data for the previous lifetime of Netflix. So we're starting at a place now where maybe we can start to compare one set of information to the next set of information and get a little more detail in that way. Yeah. And 30% of the hours watched was foreign language content, non-English language content, which is pretty good because, you know, obviously Netflix is much more penetrated in English speaking countries, but the foreign language shows tend to have more episodes than the U.S. ones do, especially lately. The interesting things that I'm paying attention to are 
A, why they did this now, and B, what the implications are going to be from this throughout the industry. And let's start with why they did this now. And Ted has gone on and on saying, yes, there was an atmosphere of mistrust. I totally agree with that. They were hoarding information and it created an imbalance when they were negotiating with talent. But I think there's something else going on here. I think Netflix is in a place right now where it has become so dominant. It is the one global television service that can take originals, licensed shows, whatever it is, and make it a global hit overnight. Although, Matt, they don't say what was watched in the U.S. or North America versus other parts of the world. So you're making a certain assumption there, right? That is true. But I'm saying an overall, a documentary like Beckham, which is something that Ted Sarandos has cited, that is something that took a big global star and made him even bigger. I mean, they're making sports leagues like F1 a thing in the U.S. where it wasn't a thing. They are able to catapult a property to a global audience in a way that the other streamers, with exceptions on specific shows that have become gigantic, they're not able to do that as often or even you know a fraction of the amount that Netflix has. So releasing all this information is sort of a flex. It's a way for Netflix to say, okay, we kind of won the streaming wars. It's us and everyone else, and we're just going to lay it all out there. And now they're encouraging others to do the same. They said in their own press release that this was a great day for Netflix and the industry. Yeah, except that he well knows that everybody else is hemorrhaging money on their streamers. So, yeah, it's like jump into the water with us, guys. We're doing fine. Yeah, exactly. It's a way for him to say to the industry and to the competitors, like, we're willing to put it out there when we weren't before. And now we are because we have nothing to hide. And we're very excited about our streaming business. How's yours doing? And at the same time, Netflix is now getting licensed content from all of the other companies. We just saw this past week, Disney licensed 14 of its hit shows to Netflix. And that's a major about face from the previous five years, where Disney was not giving the arms to the third world country that was using them against us, which is how Bob Iger described their licensing strategy pre-Disney+. Plus. Now they're right back to licensing the arms to Netflix, and everybody else is doing that too. Warner Discovery, NBC Universal, Paramount, they're all trying to build their own streamers while giving Netflix the means to separate themselves. Well, and Ted has said, you know, it benefits them because we can give it this platform. And then when it comes back to you, it will be cooler to have. And it it sort of makes me think of this thought experiment. You know, Amazon passed on Wednesday, one of the big Netflix hits, and it came from their own MGM studio. So they could have had it. They passed as many people did. But I've wondered if Wednesday had been launched on Amazon, would it be the hit that Netflix made it into? Probably not, in my opinion. Um, So that's A, why are they doing this? B, what are the implications going to be from this? And I think it's a really fascinating experiment that we're heading into, where we now have Netflix willing to lay it all out there. If your show's a hit, everyone's going to know it's a hit. Now, Netflix has had these top 10 lists that they've been doing for two years. So people kind of knew what the hits were before. What people didn't know was the extent to which things were flops on Netflix, where there was no viewership or very little viewership. And now, twice a year, we are going to see what is not a hit on Netflix. And I wonder if that's going to impact where Netflix falls in these negotiations. Because on the one hand, they can tell creators, 
come to Netflix and you're going to have a platform globally and we can make hits. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens a lot here. And if you want to go to Apple, great, go to Apple. But when was the last time Apple had a show charting? Apple doesn't even release information. So that's one side of the argument. The other side of the argument is some creators may like that. Some creators may not want the pressure of having this information out there and people scrutinizing twice a year how their show is doing. So maybe Netflix might lose some projects because of that. I don't know. I mean, ratings were always there before. Some people have had flops and it's been known. Also, I will just note, I don't think they are offering completion rates. There are limitations on the data is just basically what I'm trying to say, despite my limitations. (laughs) But still, it's a lot more than we had before. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. As first-time filmmaker Celine Song puts it, Christine Vachon is a historical figure in the independent film world. In 1996, Vachon formed Killer Films with producing partner Pamela Koffler, and their company has shepherded a wealth of independent films, including every movie from director Todd Haynes. Thanks to that relationship, this year Vachon has two films in awards contention, Haynes's May-December and Past Lives, Song's deeply autobiographical first film. Past Lives follows the story of Nora, whose family emigrated from Korea to Toronto when she was a young girl. She stays in intermittent touch with her childhood sweetheart, Sung, as she grows up, moves to New York, and meets the man she will marry. Greta Lee plays Nora, and John Magaro plays her husband, who faces the challenge of meeting his wife's old friend, who is visiting from Korea. There's a word in Korean, inyon. It means providence or fate. Do you believe in that? That's just something Koreans say to seduce someone. Childhood sweethearts who reconnect 20 years later and realize they were meant for each other. In the story, I would be the evil white American husband standing in the way of destiny. Shut up. So, Celine, you were, and maybe still are, a playwright. And I do wonder, what is it that made you say to yourself, and I know you worked on the Amazon series, Wheel of Time, and may have been just looking at entertainment as something that you wanted to do, filmed entertainment. But what made you say to yourself, I'm going to write a movie and this is the one it's going to be? Well, I think it really did have to do with what the story was about. Because the movie is something that really does span decades and continents. And the joke I usually tell is that the villain of the story is the 24 years in the Pacific Ocean. So... (laughs) It really is important for the time and space in the film to be seen literally. And in theater, which is the medium that I worked in for the last 10 years, the time and space in theater is figurative. And in film, it is all literal. And I felt like, for example, seeing the contradiction of the 12-year-old kid with uh, somebody who's almost 40 coexisting as the same person or Seoul and New York City coexisting in a way where it feels both like the same and completely different. I think those are a really important part of the language of this particular story. So it really felt like it was a cinematic uh, story that I needed to tell. Uh, yeah, and you come out of the gate pretty strongly <laughs> at this point. <laughs> um I just wonder how the pitch came to be with uh, Christine and her, I guess, partners. Was this something where you had an agent or how did that get set up? 
Well, I think that the pitch was the script because the thing is, you know, I think that that's the thing that I've done for the longest time. And the whole script was such an implication of like what kind of a movie I wanted to make. So I think that it really was that. And that was true for, of course, Christine and Pam and David, um, that it was I usually call it my seduction technique. You know, it's a way (laughs) for me to uh, get people to be interested in uh, making this movie with me. And of course, I'm a first time filmmaker. I've never... uh, directed a film before so how could I convince people to come on this amazing adventure of making a whole movie and I think that it really started and ended with the script itself. Christine what about from your end how did it come to be? So during the pandemic or during the first few months of the pandemic my business partner Pam Koffler uh, reached out to every agent she knew and said can I just see the best scripts you have Like, I don't care if they're available or not. I just need the inspiration of reading something great during these dark times. And Celine's agent sent Pam Past Lives. And Pam read it. And I remember she called me and she said, damn, you know, this is one I really wish we had. I don't think I've read a script this good this year. Um, And, you know, uh, Celine, we found the the email and it was completely mm. different cast attachments. Well, <laughs> yeah, sure. of course. Yes, sure yes. You yeah. Do, but you know, but I yeah. was like, oh right, oh right. Anyway, so a year or so later, A24 reached out to us and said that the film actually needed a producer. And Pam was like, That's the one I kept telling you about. So we were kind of all in. We were seduced immediately as Salute. <laughs> And uh, the seduction, was the original love letter what we see on the screen? Or did they then say, you know, you should lose a little weight, maybe get a little work done? (laughs) I mean, honestly, I think, and and Celine, this is really for you to answer, but from our point of view, most of the changes you made from that point on were really more production-oriented than trimming-oriented. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say. I think that uh, part of the script being the seduction technique more than anything else is that the reason why people want to do the movie is because they love the script. So it, well, it really wasn't anything that came up uh, except for what we needed to do for production or things that I personally thought, well, actually, it would be better if this part of the story was set somewhere else. So I think you, Christine, you would agree that what you saw on the page is what we see on the screen. And I hopefully it is better. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's always, him, as I'm sure you know, it's like the journey from page to screen, you know, there's things that you adjust when you actually see them or there's some things that work better than others, et cetera. But to be honest, there's not much that came away from what we shot. You Mm. know, there really wasn't. Clearly, Celine, people look at it and it tracks your life to a large degree with your parents moving to Canada from Korea, and then you going to school here and becoming a playwright. Do you feel like that's a separate person? And does it like bug you if people think it's you? Or do you feel like, yeah, that's me? <laughs> well, I think that it is fair to, you know, really trace the autobiographical roots of the story, because it really was something that uh, happened to me, which was this moment where I did find myself in this bar sitting between my child's sweetheart and my husband that I live with in New York City. And that moment is the inspiration for the whole movie. So I think it is totally fair 
for you to make assumptions about the autobiographical roots because those roots are really there. But I think that it would be remiss to not consider that as it becomes a film, I'm actually working with hundreds of people who's working on this movie. And throughout all of that, there is kind of an objectification process where it becomes a piece of art and it is going to start to you know, come away from what is like strictly autobiographical. So I think that some of it is, of course, uh, I mean, what I usually talk about it is it is a really, really personal story. I think that's the most accurate way I can think of for uh, what past lives is to me. It is so personal because it really was inspired by this private feeling I had in this bar sitting between these two people in my life who cannot speak the same language. Literally cannot, yeah. Literally mm-hmm. cannot, right? And I, it is like I'm translating between the parts of my own self and my own history. And it does feel like that my past, present, and the future are collapsing upon itself. And that's such a strange feeling that It was such an extraordinary moment for me that I thought no one else would feel this way. And as this movie has gone through what I call the objectification process of turning into a script and turning into a a film with Christine and with all my cast and crew and everyone, uh, it's become a, a movie that you can now just watch. And then, of course, what I really loved is that the audience is coming to the film with their own personal stories and their own personal connections and their own autobiographical storytelling. And I mean, my joke is I'm probably the filmmaker who knows more about childhood sweethearts of strangers (laughs) than probably anybody else, right? Yes, everybody wants to tell you. (laughs) Everybody wants to tell me. Sometimes I go to countries where I don't even speak the language of, and they want to tell me in uh, limited English about, you know, friend, kindergarten, you know, (laughs) they just want to tell me about what happened. So, and I think that that's, to me, the, the way that this has sort of gone around in a circle, and now it's come back to personal again, it makes me feel so amazing. And It's so special and I feel so, uh, I I mean, I usually say it makes me feel less lonely, you know, because that's the truth. Coming up after the break, Christine Vachon shares why she's optimistic about the state of filmmaking in 2024, even in the midst of studio belt tightening. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled, This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. Writer-director Celine Song spent years working in the New York theater world before writing her first screenplay. Though she had never directed a movie, veteran indie producer Christine Vachon and her partners at Killer Films took a leap of faith with her. The gamble paid off. Past Lives was named as one of the AFI's top 10 films of the year and won a Gotham Award for Best Feature. And it's in contention for five Independent Spirit Awards and five Golden Globes. In past lives, a young girl leaves her childhood sweetheart behind when her parents emigrate to Toronto. The two stay in touch, and eventually Nora, played by Greta Lee, finds herself explaining to her husband, played by John Magaro, that her friend from long ago is planning to visit, marking their first meeting in person in more than 20 years. Is he attractive? I think so. He's really masculine in this way that I think is so Korean. 
Are you attracted to him? I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. He was just this kid in my head for such a long time. And now he is a physical person. It's really intense, but I don't think that that's attraction. I think I just missed him a lot. Christine Vachon's Killer Films produced Past Lives in conjunction with A24. So, Christine, along comes this woman with the great script and seemingly the vision, who has not directed a movie before, but you, I assume, felt confident that, I mean, that's a roll of the dice, right? It isn't really a roll of the dice. I mean, we've been doing this for a long time, and, you know, we have a we love working with first-time directors, actually, and we feel like we have a really good nose for who has what it takes. And that really boils down to, you know, did Celine know the story she wanted to tell? And she did. You know, that was abundantly clear within five minutes of speaking with her and all the other stuff. Like, have you been on a set before? Do you know how to read a call sheet? Do you know exactly what a production designer does? Do you know exactly what a best boy is? Mm -hmm. That stuff, someone can learn very quickly. I don't think someone can learn very quickly how to tell their story. I think that's either like baked into a director or not, frankly. So you then go in the hunt for money? Is that how it works? You read it, you like it, you like Celine, you you need a few million bucks. <laughs> Usually that is the case. In this case, A24 was already attached. Oh, okay. So really what we had to do was set up the scaffolding around Celine so that she could do her best work. Yes. And you shot in South Korea and in, oh, I don't know what the locations were all in all, because I don't know if you subbed something for something else. We didn't. We shot it all in New York City. And I, you know, that's one of the many things I love about the movie is it's, you know, look, I love seeing New York in the movies. I think a lot of us do. But what I loved was it was it was Celine's New York. It was really specific and really true to itself in a way that was was a lot of fun. So when the A24 thing was set up, was Mickey Lee part of it? Was her company, CJ, a financier, a set built in already? Yeah, Celine, I believe so, right? Yeah, well, the, she, they were uh, part of the, because of the part of the film, we shot 10 days in uh, Seoul. So we actually really, it was amazing to have those partners there because they're a, a huge and amazing studio out there. So I think that just having them, it really felt like a, such a powerful partners uh, in our arsenal. And I think that we couldn't have gotten through the, you know, the 10 days in, in Korea, of course, with including, because uh, we're also shooting this in COVID. And there was a whole month of uh, prep where we were prepping from scratch because of COVID restrictions. And I think that all those things were, you know, I don't think that we could have done it. I mean, would you say without uh, CJ and their amazing partnership in this film? Absolutely. Had you been back and forth to Korea over the years? Uh, no, no not, I mean, not really. I've only been back a couple times to visit family. But this was what I really loved is that I got to visit Korea, not as a, somebody who was just spending time there, but as somebody who's working. So I got to meet all these uh, amazing people who actually work in Seoul in film production. And I think that, that I've never encountered uh, Seoul that way. So I think that was a really special thing. 
So, Christine, uh, you've got two lovely movies in the competition this year. I assume you love all your children the same. That's what my mother always claimed, although I know who her favorite was. <laughs> <laughs> she can't. Christine can't have favorites. I just, she has I to have favorites. Not. It has to be me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to split your time, right, with on the circuit for both movies. I mean, you know, look, it's, it's a high-class issue. Yes, so a luxury I, problem. Luckily, you know, uh, look, Todd thinks Past Lives is an extraordinary film, and that means a lot. And I love his movie. I, I think Todd honestly is like, God, I just like, I wish for the moon for the film. You know, he's been doing this a really long time, and I, I feel like nobody's drawing a line in the sand. Um, mm. I want both movies to succeed as much as possible. And that's where I'm putting my focus. And, you know, let's see what happens. So it's surprising that, Christine, you've never gotten nominated, I think. And, of course, that would be a dream. And I think the dream may be about to come true. You've been on this circuit of promoting uh, many times. Um, right. But, Celine, this is your first rodeo, <laughs> an uh, explosive beginning. How are you finding this schedule, which is already insane and probably getting a lot more insane in the next, definitely getting more insane in the next coming weeks. Well, I just feel like it's such an amazing thing. I think I'm just so happy and thrilled that, you know, I'm getting to do this and talk about the movie and share the movies so much. And I also want to just uh, highlight the thing that you were saying earlier that it's like, you know, getting to also do this with uh, Christine and Pam and David and the thing is, it's like, you know, they're the people who uh, invented New York City independent filmmaking and what an honor it is to be on the whatever this uh, this part of the rodeo uh, with them. And I think it's like, I mean, can you believe that they've never been nominated? Can you believe? I just can't believe it is the truth. And <laughs> I think that I just feel so honored to be a part of their journey, this part of the journey as my first movie. Like what an amazing thing. And I mean, I don't know enough to be really like I don't, it's because it's part of it being a first rodeo is that it is, of course, a source of uncertainty, but it's also a source of fearlessness for me because I can't be scared of what I don't know, right? So right. That, and by the way, that helped me in production as well. In production, I feel like every day I was like, oh, I didn't know that I had to be scared of that, you know, <laughs> because I just didn't know anything. But anyway. Christine. Yes, you found your way. I read, Christine, that Celine said meeting you, I think, was like meeting a historical figure or something. Yes. Which, oh, okay. Well, that, that makes me feel young. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. You're so young. It's wise, though, wise, very wise. But I did read it somewhere, Christine, where you said that you were optimistic, I think, about 2024 and Hollywood's going through so much, as is the world right now. It's right. just been grim all around, but we are emerging from the Hollywood hibernation. You uh, said this will be great for a company like yours because the, the quote you said is, we understand the tightrope walk between the creative and the financial, and we know how to lean into the limitations to make our stories as good as they can be. Are you still feeling that confidence? Because it seems to me like we are in a time where, you know, I mean, they're practically selling the furniture at Warner's and uh, everybody's mm -hmm. trying to make money and streaming is draining their life's blood. <laughs> it's uh, right. maybe it is a time for you you guys to, I mean, not that you've been sitting by the road doing nothing for the past years, but maybe it's a, a good age for you guys, huh? I mean, until the strike happened, we'd had our most prolific couple of years, you know, frankly, during the pandemic, we made, I think we made six or seven films. So I just do feel now though, look, out of great disruption does come great opportunity. 
And there's a lot of doom saying about how much less the studios are going to spend. And I stand by that quote. I mean, I feel like we've been doing that. Killer's been doing that its entire life, figuring out how to make the limitations work in favor of the storytelling. And we're going to continue to do it. Can I say, can I just add one thing? Of course you can. Um, I just wanted to say, it's like, well, I think that what's been an amazing thing is that like for me, who is a first time filmmaker, who is very new to budget and schedule and how to work my way through everything. I think that's something that I really felt is that there's nothing like watching Christine, Pam and David look at a budget and a schedule. Literally, it is like fully like watching Savant go through. It's just like a page full of numbers. There's a way in which it was such an inspiring part of the process for me for them to be so in control of and be able to handle what it's like to uh, make a film. And I think when it comes to the limitations or the way that movies get squeezed and things like that, I think that there is no one like them, really. And it's been like, I don't know, I just feel like, I don't know, I just got to experience what it's like to be a proper filmmaker because uh, they're my partners. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Celine Song wrote and directed Past Lives, which was produced by Christine Vachon. The film is playing in select theaters and is available to rent and purchase digitally. Thank you very much for talking to us about the movie today. Of course. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business.